I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Studio Ghibli Collection, Part 5. Princess Mononoke, My Neighbours the Yamadas, and The Cat Returns. In a time when gods walk the earth, an epic battle rages between the encroaching civilization of man and the gods of the forest. When the forest has been cleared and the wolves wiped out, this place will be the richest land in the world. Now, the fate of the world rests on the courage of one fearless princess. I'm not afraid to die, and I would do anything to get the humans out of here. And one brave warrior. You fight like a demon, boy. Like something possessed. What exactly are you here for? To see with eyes unclouded. I hate. Now watch closely, everyone. I'm going to show you how to kill a god. Fire! It will be a battle the humans will never forget. Jillian Anderson, Billy Crudup, Claire Danes, Minnie Driver, Jada Pinkett Smith, and Billy Bob Thornton. You cannot alter your fate, however. You can rise to meet it if you choose. Princess Mononoke. Princess Mononoke is top tier Ghibli. It is maybe the rawest form of uh, Miyazaki going, you aren't fucking listening, are you? And just presenting us with a world where he heightens the violence of Nausicaa to the only time that Ghibli's actually ever had shocking violence in it. And it is pervasive and it is throughout this thing. It's also, you know, I mentioned that he doesn't ever really tend to cover feudal Japan. Aside from, uh, there's cult, uh, architectural nods to it in Spirited Away. Like, you don't get many pagodas. But here, you get samurai running around in the background in the countryside. They are not portrayed as heroic. In fact, they seem to be preying on the peasants and the uh, the people who are hideously under-armoured and under-armed in order to, like they're farmers, protecting themselves with uh, you know, improvised weapons while these warriors slash them to bits. And the violence that gets meted out are things like limbs get hacked off, heads get sl sliced off by flying arrows, and it's like, the, the exaggeration of this, I'm, I'm sure it is possible to remove someone's head with a single arrow, but it feels like that's a special arrow. <laughs> A man is about to attack another man with a sword and Prince Ashitaka fires an arrow that takes off both of his arms and pins them to a tree, leaving him in a kind of a what? with no arms. That's not Ghibli! I mean, specifically, just to address how that happens, Ashitaka has a cursed arm. Mm and that lends him this unholy, unearthly strength. Right. He is horrified that his arrows did that. He mm. was not expecting them to have quite such an impact. Yeah, but it, it, it illustrates, I'm just sort of saying out off the bat, this is the only Ghibli that actually seems to do this and hit so hard. Yeah. Ergo, this hits harder than Grave of the Fireflies because it goes back and forth in, in tone in terms of it presents you with staggering beauty mm. and peace and then destroys it. Yeah. 
and it presents you with a, a fragile balance that is constantly in danger of explosion on either side. I think part of the difference between the two is that Grave of the Fireflies kind of positions it as this is the uh, the end conclusion of a system that's gone horribly wrong mm -hmm. and doesn't support people. And what can you do in the face of that? Well, starve, starve to, to death. death. Whereas Mononarchy is... This is the beginnings of a system that is going to fuck us all if we let it get too far. What can we do to stop that from happening? It's, it's, it doesn't necessarily give you the answers to that, but it puts you in the position of there is still stuff that you can do. You are not the person at the bottom of this pile having the whole system fall on you yet. What can you do in order to, to keep that back, keep that tide back? I honestly wish that the way Takahata had responded to the question as to whether Fireflies was anti-war or not is it's anti-conflict. Articulate that in mature fashion as opposed to hand-waving away it's not anti-war. Princess Mononoke is anti-war, it's anti-conflict. It is look at what this does as the cycle of hate and reprisal continues yeah, over is, and over it is again. Very the, much. If it's an eye for an eye, everyone ends up blind. Yes, that's what I was exactly what I was about to say. So it feels like most of you folks will if you've seen one Ghibli, it'll be this or Spirited Away, probably, because these are the ones that get these are the cowboy bebop mm. and uh they get talked about a lot, and with good reason. I was going to say Trigun or Full Metal Alchemist, in terms of just animes that everyone says are fantastic. But I will uh, detail the plot as much as is relevant, because it is important to get it in perspective. We begin with, and I only found this out the other day, a, what appears to be a displaced group of, uh, of historical Japanese people, with Prince Ashitaka in their... Uh, midst as the as our hero they are effectively a culture that has been pushed out and they are outsiders ergo Ashitaka is an outsider from outsiders and their culture is in serious danger living with the land when a giant demon boar attacks and goes absolutely ballistic and it's uh, it's like a, a full-on Zelda creature, and I say that insofar as Zelda has always been influenced by Ghibli, but uh, in in later years, especially with Skyward Sword and Breath of the Wild, you see these big type shadowy, leechy, corrupted, darkish, purplish creatures. And in our Breath of the Wild show, we uh, we talk about how the color of corruption in video games often seems to be this dark purple, this kind of, or in in, in this is sort of a there's a maroon, dried blood red to it as well. But it's it's dark and it's it can also be expressed in this in this sort of viscous fluid that's not any particular color, but it's always this glutinous, globulous kind of carnivorous substance it's that devours and destroys what it touches. The red that you're describing, as well as the dried blood, what 
felt like to me was um, rust that's got into water. Mm. I am. Um, and, and given that this is about the encroachment of industrialization and how if you let it take too much of a hold and it gets its teeth into the land, then yeah. it, it will uh, infect it, then that I think that stands. Um, and the, uh, the substance that seems to sort of seep out and cover everything feels very much like uh, mucus in the sense that it is a part of an immune system, but it's an immune system that's been overloaded and it's and gone is, haywire. It's yeah. producing far too much in a, a against an invader that it is helpless against. It's it's throwing this stuff out because it's all it's got, mm. but it's actually not going to help. Yeah, uh, this bore when it is uncovered. Uh, is is mortally wounded by Ashitaka, but not before it leaves its mark upon him. His arm is kind of scarred with this curse, rusty curse, uh, and uh, the the boar uh, tells him uh, tells him as much that uh, you are going to feel this my wrath and, and and my hatred, and it will carry on beyond me. And so Ashitaka, who is another one of these paragons, just absolutely kind and gentle and stoic and solemn and good-natured and good-hearted and not much fun but absolutely good through and through has this horrendous thing eating away at him for the rest of the film and he goes off in search of where the boar came from and comes across iron town which is a uh, a, a big industrialized ironworks uh, that feels kind of approaching 17th 17th 18th uh, century in terms of like you know the the means of production escalating yeah it's it's definitely the the setting is clearly a fantasy one and the elements of uh sort of pre-industrial life that are being portrayed are anachronistic with the industrial mm. uh entry point that we're seeing here. It's symbolic fantasy. But it's, yeah, it's representative. It's not meant to be uh, one to historically one, historical. accurate. Yeah. You know, like when people say, of course there's no people of colour in the Witcher games. There weren't back in those days. The days of mutation and magic and blah, blah, blah. Because in, in Polish folklore, they don't have people of colour. Yeah, cool. That is a Thermian argument and you're a dick. Yeah, the Witcher Age falls between the time when the oceans drank Atlantis and the Shrek Age. Somebody! R.I.P.D. Smash Mouth singer Steve Harwell, by the way. But Iron Town itself has this aggressive kind of stamp upon the land aesthetic to it. Like when observed from a distance, it is a giant wooden stockade surrounded by spikes because they they are. The people inside are terrified of constant encroachment and attack from the surrounding forest. Yeah. One thing I observed is that when you pull back enough to be able to get like a full wide shot of Iron Town, it looks like a scab. It looks like you, you can see sort of the edges just around the wooden stockade mm. where the, the grass is browned because they've disturbed it. Yeah. And then you've got the, the fields and the woodlands around the outside of that, but you can see this town is like someone has scooped a chunk of flesh out of the earth and then it's crusted over. It's yeah. it, just this, uh, we're using a lot of wound and illness and um, uh, repair imagery because that's the way this is conveyed. Like what we're watching here is an earth being hurt 
and trying to heal itself and not being able to because this is stuck in there, the thorn is still in the paw, the bullet is still in the boar. Um, there's just all of this going on that, that just feels like Miyazaki trying to convey a look at what we do, we are hurting it. Yeah, as, as you say, the bullet is in the bore. There is a big blob of iron which has clearly been shot into his side and created this infection. Yeah, and this is baffling to Ashitaka's people initially because they don't have firearms in any way, shape or form. They've got no idea what this is. Yeah, they're on bows and arrows. So Ashitaka intervenes, talks to the people of Iron Town, and uh, tries to work out why this conflict is occurring. Mm. Hayao Miyazaki in this film goes out of his way to say it's not as easy as all that. It's not as simple and cut and dried as people are bad, they take from the land, they rip the iron out, and then they abuse it. And animals and nature are good, and they never do anyone any harm. <laughs> that wolf bit that man's throat out. And that woman's arm off. And it just, like, there's at one point, the giant wolf, like, looks down at Ashitaka, who's effectively unconscious, and goes, I'm having that, grabs his head and starts going, like, like, I am just throwing to just take that head off. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. This is what I mean about the sudden violence. Miyazaki this time illustrates anger and fury and violence and retribution and bloodlust and bitterness on both sides. It is not nature bad, people good, or nature unstoppable, people victims, or people bad, nature victims. It's, this is disharmony. And Ashitaka represents the ability to see with eyes unclouded by hate. And there is a serious value in being able to do what Miyazaki does with the people of Irontown in this. Lady Eboshi played wonderfully in the American version, not the version we saw this time, but in the American version by Minnie Driver, whom, as you all know, folks, I love. Everything about the way she looks, stands, conducts herself, suggests she's an anime villain. She's got that kind of haughtiness and that kind of um, very clear, this is how I see the world. And Everything about her is pointy. Yeah. If there's a thing in my way, I'm going to get it out of my way. By stabbing it. But you find out in your time with her, she's incredibly kind, even if it's well-meaning kind that actually uh, leads to uh, conflict in the future. For example, she shelters lepers and the sick who have no other place to go. And it's not a kind of a ha-ha, come work for me. She actually genuinely has compassion for them. It's not like, oh, these are the cheapest workers I could possibly get. They love her, they care about her, but not in a cult leader sort of way. They appreciate what she's done for them. The women of Iron Town are all seemingly prostitutes who have been shunned by society but are given a home and a place here to work their asses off, but in a kind of way where it's... Yep, we are doing our thing and we're proud of what we do. Again, with Miyazaki's hard work ethic. There's very much a community sense of we all support mm -hmm. each other. They they like they have the, the women's community and the men's community within Iron Town. They tease each other. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of banter back and forth. Yeah. The women are fiery and don't take any shit. And the potato-headed men never seem to really want to stamp down on the women. They've got far too much to worry about going on outside. It's like Mass Effect. There's no more racism among humans. We're too busy being racist to aliens. Indeed. And also, they don't have to work as 
hard as presumably they did as farmers or, or whatever their previous lives were, they get fed, they get sheltered. I don't know, they do say they've got like 48-hour shifts. Well, yeah, she shelters them from most stuff, but they do have to sort of go out on patrol every now and again. 48 hours of working the bellows, I think they under-animated how fucking awesome the thighs <laughs> on these ladies would have been. Just pushing down with those thighs and, oh my god, they could crush me! Anyway, very notably, they all have um, tow towels around their head. There's a practicality to it insofar as it's uh, to stop an ember from getting into their hair and burning their hair up, but also it seems to be deliberately desexualizing them so that they are the opposite of how uh, ladies, especially sex workers of any kind, are portrayed in regular anime. Oh, absolutely. They they wear sort of these little short bathrobe type mm. clothes, but there's uh, there's a few scenes of flirting generally instigated by the women themselves, yeah. but for the most part they are not uh pictured here or or treated as objects of lust at all. Mm. They're certainly not there for the audience to gawp at. Mm. And the moment they see Ashitaka they're like, "Oh, he's dreamy," but not in a kind of an way in a kind of an adult mature woman way yeah and then when we actually meet the creatures and peoples of the forest some of them are weird like the little wood spritey like tick, 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 things what are they called uh, i can't remember what they're called but what they represent is um the health of the trees yeah. basically if the trees are healthy you will have lots of these little creepy sprites running around yeah. the place it is a mark of concern when they start to disappear yeah kodama or the singular for them, Kodak. The one at the end is showing viewers that the forest is growing back and promising new life. Trivia, that Kodama later turned into Totoro. I think we need a judge's ruling on this one. That sounds like a fan theory. Representing the animals the most, we've got this wolf pack headed up by a giant wolf, a giant white Fenrir-style, huge, carnivorous lupine thing, this monster behemoth wolf that speaks in a sort of a deep gruff voice in either Japanese or uh, American. And the titular Princess Mononoke... The, Jap the, the American dub is... Gillian Anderson. Anderson. I know. But she speaks big, in a deep, deep voice. voice. <laughs> oh my lord, a big deep booming voice. <laughs> the titular Princess Mononoke is a girl named San who... Uh, when her parents were spooked by the wolves in the forest, threw their baby at them because they were like, haha, let's give them a snack right. so we can get the fuck I away. I think I might have an idea why San doesn't trust humans as far as she can fucking throw them. <laughs> yeah, she's effectively a Mowgli, but rather than going, she must go back to Irontown, it's a case of not letting her go in Irontown, let's go and kill all of Irontown because people suck. She's voiced by Claire Danes in the American version, uh, and, and San is passionately, angrily anti-human. She has uh, entirely immersed herself in the wolf culture. Uh, she moves in a wild manner. She's absolutely captivating in that way. I've, I, I saw a San cosplay the other day that made me think, maybe they should do a live-action Princess Mononoke. No, stop thinking like that! <laughs> She's animalistic and hypnotic and she moves with this feral grace and I internalized a lot, a lot of Princess Mononoke. I didn't like it originally, but it took a while for me to, uh, to, to re, like I had to watch quite a few YouTube videos to really uh, appreciate it. I think Josh Garrity 
did one about eyes unclouded by hate, which was just wonderful. And um, he was always great to, to, to get on the show. He loaded with insight and subtlety. Ultimately, the conflict is going back and forth and back and forth because the wolves of the woods and the boars of the woods and the apes of the woods, these apes turn up, I'm like, did apes exist in Japan in, Japan in their mythology? Really? Yeah. I suppose monkeys. Yeah, monkeys and, and bigger monkeys. <laughs> but they're really weird. Like, the weird apes, that uh, they look like Ralph Bakshi things, especially when they're like, give us Ashitaka, let us kill him. Uh, they've got that rotoscoped look and the red eyes. There's, there's something about the way the apes are portrayed which is very different from the like the wolves and the boars are so detailed mm. and, and look so real. And then you've got particularly the, the distant shots of the apes. They're very vague and they kind of fall into this grey mass with yeah. all of these red eyes and it did make me wonder if it's not said explicitly but it, it makes me feel them very acutely as the step between nature and man that's what I thought I was like ultimately the, the wolves are more anthropomorphized than the apes yeah yeah, but that's that's the thing because it, it's almost like you're seeing the apes at that point through the eyes of the forest, and to the forest, men are just this amorphous blob that comes here and tries to burn us down, and the apes are getting very close to being that. And there's a uh, a scene where San rush rushes into, does like a single solo assault on. Uh, Iron Town. Actually, she's with her two brothers, the other wolves, mm, at this yeah, point. Yeah, uh, she does way more than they do. Yeah, she like she is the ninja leaping up onto the rooftops, and she is trying to assassinate thumbs. Opposable thumbs. She got the very handy. Yeah, uh, she's trying to assassinate Lady Eboshi, who is very cool and calm in terms of right. I'm going to take you on in front of everyone else. Ashitaka comes between them, duffs them both in the stomach, and then shoulders them both in in this. It's a slightly patronizing way, but at the same time, they've kind of stabbed him both. It's very much, there is a move in Nausicaa where I think he's voiced by Patrick Stewart in the um, uh, American version. The old man comes between two people's blades and takes the, takes the stab in his arm and doesn't flinch and just sort of allows this blade to pierce him rather than the other person, much like Nausicaa allows that little fox thing to uh, uh, to bite her. Oh, by the way, the little fox squirrel things turn up in Castle in the Sky as well, so it's like a wonderful little continuation of that. Were it not for Totoro being the mascot of uh, Ghibli, I feel like that, that, uh, that squirrel fox would probably have been the thing. But yeah, that, oh, you're just frightened, I'll take the pain, and uh, which obviously Nausicaa then carries on with, and the, uh, oh, you're both angry, I'll take the blade, and then coming between them. And, then, and it's the de-escalation, and at the same time, this selflessness in the, the being able to stand very firm and saying, no, we're not doing this. Yeah. Which feels like this is what was absent from every version of Civil War. Mm. It needed a vision who wasn't just looking at the big picture and was able to also look at the small picture to come in between the both of them and say, stop, this is the worst thing that can happen. Yeah. The anti-Zemo. I think possibly the reason why it never occurred it to It would have been Peter this, this... had he known them and not been completely out of his depth. True, but also what I was um, about to say was that the the 
one of the significant elements of this move is that you have to know you can take it. Yeah. Because if you get in between them and they kill you, mm. you've achieved nothing. I think at this point, Ashitaka is fully prepared to die for the ideal oh, of, of preventing yeah, But conflict. also there's a, there's a degree of him knowing that the strength he is lent by this curse mm. means that he can take these blows in a way that nobody else could. Yeah. And as he walks away with San, uh, is it Eboshi herself shoots? Like no, it's one of the one of the women who's been trying to. She's been panicky and jittery, and tr mm. was trying to protect Lady Eboshi. Yeah, she she actually stops, but is still holding the the gun. It's like a little hand cannon. Aquabus. Um, Aquabus. Thank you. She's still holding it, and it goes off by mistake. The um, the the flame that somebody's got ready to light it accidentally falls on it and then it goes off unintentionally. Because this is what happens when you surround yourself with things that are meant to explode yep. on cue. Sometimes but they explode off cue. Don't point them at people. Maybe don't have them in the first place. Anyway, um, and this uh, mortally wounds Ashitaka even though cursed and uh, by shooting him through the back and they stagger into the forest and there's a communion of sorts with this nature spirit that it resembles a giant it's the great prince of the forest from Bambi this sort of antlered stag he appears as a stag during the day and at night he's this goat chicken giant, thing um, no 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 when he turns into this this sort of spirit energy a jelly kaiju yeah, yeah <laughs> effectively full of stars yeah Ashitaka has healed just enough to uh, uh, to come back to life, but then Billy Bob Thornton's character, who is uh, starts out as an ally, but effectively becomes one of the uh, greatest uh, antagonists. It's also worth noting that Billy Crudup, uh, Russell Nash in uh, Almost Famous, also Zack Snyder's Doctor Manhattan. We talked about him during our Big Fish show. Does an excellent job at the uh, the calm American Ashitaka. He has a steadying presence to him. There were many ways they could have screwed up that character. Trying to make him too obviously heroic for a start. Yeah, it's his seriousness. It's a little Steve Rogers in terms of his purity. Mm, yeah. He's not as fun as Steve Rogers, which is saying something. It, yeah. Since uh, Chris Evans is very rarely allowed to break loose with his comedy. It's, it's Steve Rogers as you can imagine him being perceived by his S.H.I.E.L.D. co-workers. Who which, only get to see his professional side. Which is why Civil War is so screwed up. It should be T'Challa on one side, Stark on the other, and Steve in the middle saying no. But he's too personally involved. That's the thing. Billy Bob Thornton's character of Jigo is a monk and a mercenary who starts off befriending Ashitaka, but actually becomes an even potentially greater antagonist than Lady Eboshi because he's what... Miyazaki perceives as a normal man who will continue to serve themselves. And he seems to want to bring the conflict to an end by eliminating the threat from the forest. But there's a preposterousness to this, the idea that uh, you can eliminate all threats with violence, with subterfuge, with espionage, and that if you kill enough creatures, terror will be brought to an end. There's a futility to it. The delusion that it will actually end in peace. Peace that is a balance 
that it will end in something that does not read as a tragedy. And eventually the, uh, the, the violence and reprisal escalates to the point where the forest god, who's kind of benevolent but at the same time doesn't have that, again, that doesn't have that human, as, he is not Aslan, that, that kind of, you know, son of Adam and then the talking to Ashitaka and the, the, the talking back and forth. It's got that strangeness of Totoro, but with a wildness and a uh, unpredictability. And its head gets severed from its body by uh, a, a gunshot, leading it to uh, transform into this kaiju again. It's a Pandora's box being opened. It's a, you've, you've now unleashed the fury of nature and it has the force of a tsunami or a tidal wave or an earthquake. And Japan has been rocked by these repeatedly in the past. So it's terrifyingly impersonal in its destructive rampage presenting a threat to everything around it. So the forest won't necessarily be safe as this giant outpouring of pent-up damage turns about and starts to flood the entire land. And it doesn't end on a, a happy note. It, uh, Miyazaki's been asked, uh, it, it's, it's bittersweet, it's the way it should end. It ends on a melancholy, uh, sense of like you couldn't just end it in a way where it's like and then the industrial revolution was brought to an end and humans decided to be careful about their environment we know that isn't the case and he doesn't deliver platitudes to us and when asked about what would happen to the in the effectively the su the subplot of this is it's about a boy and a girl who like each other the uh, relationship between Ashitaka and San he never seems to invest everything in it because he's always got his duty that he puts ahead kind of like Steve and Peg um, also because he thinks he's gonna die but that's yeah that's the other thing he knows he's only got limited time to do what he he must and so he never really allows himself to dwell on gratifying the self yeah although it does this is possibly exacerbated by the fact that it's Claire Danes playing the uh, playing San in the American version practically the same year she uh, played Juliet yeah so it, it to me has that feeling of what the friar wanted to achieve by helping Romeo and Juliet mm. get the the marriage and the relationship that they wanted oh my god it, it really is two houses both alike in dignity yeah he saw a way of, of using this connection between these two young people to end a feud and maybe not necessarily bring the two sides together but at least end the perpetual conflict but it's refreshing that the friar in this is the one caused like uh, exacerbating yeah. the conflict and the romeo in this Stop is poking things rather than being super melodramatic and doing dumb things mm. when it's like dude just just hold back and also juliet I've said this before, your dad said, hang, starve, die in the street. That is your cue to leave. Mm -hmm. That is your, your go-ahead to go, you know what? This is weird. Peace. It's unusual yes. to actually have a, a young hero who's so firm about what he's doing. Like, I, I, I would love it if there was a Zelda game where Link not necessarily spoke... 
but actually was self-motivated. As opposed to having Zelda constantly poking Link, you have to do this! Oh, sorry, she's not fucking Navi. Zelda Zelda is almost always this. She has that goodness, she has that drive and that fire, and uh, uh, she's more fun when she's playing Tetra, but uh, this is her, and thus she's always a better character than Link. For her part, San has never really sort of allowed in the idea of, of a potential connection to Ashitaka because he's, he's a human. human. She hates The idea humans. is loathsome, and she has real difficulty getting over that. And Miyazaki said, when asked what happens after that, that he suspects that it will be a very uneasy truce between these two houses, and that Ashitaka will attempt to intermediate between the two of them, and it will continuously tear him apart because he wants to be with San, but he can't give himself over entirely to just that because he has to do this. He has to be at the, his post. If he leaves, then the connection point between Iron Town mm. and a, a maintained peace with mm. the forest is gone. It doesn't necessarily mean that everything would end in disaster, but it means that, as you say, he's leaving his post, the gate is no longer guarded. Yeah. And it's absolutely right and proper that it doesn't end on a uh, happy note of it's okay, it's all in safe fictional hands now. It's conferring upon us the position of Ashitaka to de-escalate where we see conflict. This connection points where previously there has been clash. Yeah. This is an anti-war, anti-conflict movie that manages to end on a powerful note of there are things we can do to prevent this. It takes sacrifice, as opposed to what can you do but die. Yeah. Starve to death. And ultimately, Grave of the Fireflies is a serious critique on society and a lack of compassion, which war is supposed to address and bring out in all of us the best. But we know that that's not actually the case. Sometimes it can bring us together, but oftentimes it brings us together against a common enemy whom we then fling ourselves at until tragedy ensues. Ultimately, de-escalation is the answer that allows the most people to live. And negotiation is the way of being able to move forwards with consistent revision to allow fairness. But it is worth noting that de-escalation has to be happening on both sides. Somebody, yes, has to be the first person to say, let's de-escalate. But as I have seen it pointed out using a current year example, if Ukraine de-escalates, it doesn't stop a damn thing. I could bring up all kinds of war metaphors for the current conflicts, but ultimately the point is made by the movie. And Ashitaka is an aspirational figure, albeit a paragon. Living with Miyazaki, Part 7, Princess Mononoke. This piece was written by Brendan Agnew of Synapse, and he very kindly agreed to read it for us. Welcome back to our continuing series on Living with Miyazaki, as we examine the lessons one can take from his various films through the recurring motifs and varied approaches. And this is, as they say, the big one. Not in that it was the first Miyazaki film to find an audience in America, Those of us old enough to remember infomercials can tell you about the VHS marketing campaign for the localized release of Kiki's Delivery Service, but in that it's impossible to ignore the crater-sized impact this film had. Not only was it the most successful movie in Japanese theatrical history until Titanic, but it was cited as a direct influence on James Cameron's follow-up project Avatar. 
If you're at all familiar with anime, you've at least heard of the movie, and everything from kids' cartoons to AAA video games has been cribbing notes from this particular page of Miyazaki's work for 25 years. Because it's probably, if not the best, the most Miyazaki movie ever. And I don't just mean that because it's his longest film, which it is, but that this was clearly a leave-everything-in-the-ring project. Princess Mononoke is a summation of the broad thematic strokes of his previous body of work, and even an echoing answer to a couple specific recurring questions that he had on his mind all the way back to Nausicaa. Similar to his post-apocalyptic masterpiece from the previous decade, Mononoke opens in an idyllic village, where a brave youth is called upon to aid their people against an attack from a terrifying outside force, in the form of a monstrous boar demon. Unlike the princess from the Valley of the Wind, the fallout of Prince Ashitaka's selfless actions lead to him being afflicted with a deadly curse on his right arm, and he's subsequently banished from his home. Given a choice between accepting his death as an immutable destiny and rising to meet the challenge, Ashitaka embarks on a big old quest to discover the origins of the demon, and winds up smack in the middle of a three-sided war on the outskirts of the forest of the Deer God. The forest gods and their kin, giant intelligent animals, fight to protect the forest spirit that protects the land, while the people of Lady Iboshi's Iron Town mine for ore while fending off animal attacks and greedy samurai. Allied with the forest gods is a girl named San, adopted daughter of the wolf clan dubbed Princess Mononoke, a term alluding to shapeshifters who possess people for malicious ends by the people of the Ironworks. When Ashitaka discovers that the human's iron bullets are what cursed the boar god and turned it into a demon, he resolves to throw himself between the combatants until they can reach a peace or until his body gives out. The catch being that the curse has also imbued him with extraordinary strength to complement his already honed combat abilities, but at the cost of the curse spreading a little further each time they're used. Here is where Miyazaki finally unleashes the full weight of his abilities as an action director, to horrifying results. Earlier films mitigated his hatred for armed conflict with either comedic shenanigans, and also flying, or easy targets, and also flying. Here, everything is blades, bullets, fangs, and blood. But no flying. The camera will zip through the air not to catch the path of an aircraft gorgeously breaking free of the Earth's pull, but of an arrow ripping a soldier's arms from his body, or an eagle-eye view of a charnel house battlefield. While the film has no love of the soldiers of the iron-grubbing Lord Asano, even their lives are never wasted in the film's combat sequences, but used as sobering reminders of the fragile bodies the expansive cast of characters inhabit. Miyazaki's talent for exhilarating animated action are on full display, but it all comes at a terrible cost. Because if this movie didn't care so much, all that kick-ass violence would just be the coolest shit to watch. But it does care. Seems unable not to. Princess Mononoke spends its epic runtime learning about the folk can't really call Moro and Okoto's tribes people, both in the forest and in Irontown. Not to both sides the whole don't kill the thing you live on idiot issue, but to show the cost and lives of blindly perpetuating conflict. We get to learn and care about the women who run the forge and the lepers Lady Iboshi shelters just as Ashitaka is falling in love with San and her forest, and we're giving multifaceted characters, often with deliberate counterparts, to let even the iron-fisted Lady Iboshi seem occasionally sympathetic. If you're noticing a pattern, duality is at the heart of this film, and how it both presents its worldview while also grappling with its own thematic conclusions. Irontown is deliberately modeled on western frontier towns, like those giving civilization, footnote, industrialization, capitalism, and genocide, a foothold in the American West. 
While the film is set sometime roughly in the 16th century, Miyazaki took inspiration from the westerns of John Ford in the design and story purpose of the ironworks. There are characters whose goals and alignments you can practically plot across opposite sides of an intersecting graft. Iboshi and Jigo on one side, Moro and Okoto on the other, Ashitaka and San converging right near the middle, with the film really digging into the consequences of the choices that differentiate these pairs. And naturally, there's the literal manifestation of this duality in the forest spirit. A being that's a dear god with a human face, taking physical form during the day while walking as a giant spirit at night and presiding over the domains of life and death. What's ultimately terrifying about the Deer God isn't the uncanny valley of its design or the mortal consequences it can bestow, but the unknowable nature of its whims. The Force Spirit gives life, and it takes life, regardless of the most well-laid plans of wolves and men. It's the world, with terrifying troubles and equally terrifying beauty around every corner, and no knowing for sure which you'll find. If this seems a roundabout way uh, to get to this entry's lesson, that's because the lesson is in the debate the film is having with itself for nearly its entire 134 minutes. The world is cursed, it says, over and over again. And the movie never really belies this statement. In fact, given how frank it is about mortality and how world-ending the finale threatens to be, it seems to agree. The minute we're born, we're already dying, and the best we can ever do is prolong the process. But like the Oracle said, life isn't about escaping that fate, but how you rise to meet it. For every haunting image that will sear itself into the closet of your nightmares, this film throws so many more into your eyeballs that will take your breath away. Ashitaka and San, two kids who can't even be out of their teens, are told over and over again by those older or in higher stations all the way to literal gods themselves that they're struggling in vain. But. The film positions them as the dropped pebbles that alter the course of the river, becoming themselves instruments in the fates of gods and warlords because they understand and accept that my end and the end are not the same. The dirty secret of life isn't that it can be so easily snuffed out, but that in spite of its fragility, in spite of the statistical improbability of its existence in the first place, it's still here. Yes, the world is full of terror and wonder in equal measure, but that wonder is worth something. That's why the film takes its time to revel in so many small details and quiet interludes. It's worth the struggle, whether it's the next sunrise, or a final farewell, or a new friend, or even a quick nap atop the battlements. Princess Mononoke argues that it's not called the good fight because it's easy, or that fighting is good but because it's good to rage against the dying of the light, to steal a few more moments of life from the unnatural greed of those who would hoard everything they could. You're still here, right now. That's worth fighting for. To finish on Princess Mononoke, this is the very piece by Josh Garrity that inspired us to look deeper into Ghibli. Same as his Avatar The Last Airbender video from the same YouTube series, the short-lived animation archives encouraged us to find the greatest animated show of all time, which in turn brought some of our best episodes, which in turn brought some of our best listeners. We literally cannot thank Josh enough. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Animation Archives. This episode will be covering another Ghibli classic, Princess Mononoke. 
Princess Mononoke was released in Japan in 1997, and it would be another two years before it arrived on Western shores. It's set in a fantastical version of the Morimachi period of Japan. I have a lot of emotions tied up in this movie, so this episode has proved particularly hard to write. Like with My Neighbor Totoro, I'm going to assume everyone watching this has already seen the film. Or indeed heard all about it from us. Being a show about animated films and TV shows, it might seem weird to you that I don't dedicate a portion of these episodes just to talk about aesthetics. This is because I have felt in the past that simply showing you the animation while playing the soundtrack in the background conveys what I would have said more effectively. Princess Mononoke is a special case. Almost every moment of Princess Mononoke could be framed and placed in a gallery. The art direction on display is masterful. The environments have a similar look and feel to the work of painters like Turner and have the power to evoke strong emotions with but a glance. Joe Hisashi's score is also breathtaking. I mean, just listen to this. Both of these aesthetic elements are strong individually, but it's when they are combined that they reach their true potential. For me, personally, as an audiovisual experience, Princess Mononoke is nothing short of transcendent. This is a common theme throughout Miyazaki's work, but none of his films discuss the subject in the detail and complexity of Princess Mononoke. Princess Mononoke isn't filled with the same hope and happiness for the future the way many of Miyazaki's earlier films are. This speaks of a man who is increasingly worried about the direction mankind is taking itself, and that lessons are not being learnt. Here is a quote from the man himself. We've made many films in the past, and our goal with those films has been to send a message of hope and the possibility of happiness to growing children. What we realised was that by continuing to make movies that only taught them about hope and happiness, we were in fact turning a deaf ear to their very urgent needs and pleas, and if we did not make a movie that directly addressed their needs and pleas, we no longer would have the right to make films that would encourage them to be hopeful and happy. So we made this film knowing that we would need to step outside the boundaries of what you call entertainment. We made this film from a sense of mission. I think the reason why I prefer Princess Mononoke to so many films with an ecological message is that it acknowledges that these aren't easy problems to solve and it doesn't have the arrogance to come up with solutions of its own. The film only wishes that we would all sit down and at least think about what we're doing to the world around us, rather than unsustainably trudging forward. The film doesn't preach the message that mankind's progress is bad and that nature is inherently good. Rather, it asks us to manage our antagonism with nature so that we might find some kind of balance. 
which neatly moves us on to the next subject. What do you plan to do? What exactly are you here for? To see with eyes unclouded by hate. To see with eyes unclouded by hate. Those words have spoke to me on such a personal level that it has become a quality I strive for in life. Negative emotions blind us to the whole picture so that we are only able to see things from a narrow perspective. The relationship between Lady Eboshi and San is a great example of this. Both see each other as either unquestionably evil and or a wild and dangerous threat to the people they care about. The reality is both are flawed human beings with genuine positive intentions. Lady Eboshi is ruthless, greedy and short-sighted, however, she is also quite selfless. She established Irontown not only to further her own goals, but to protect and care for the people who no one else would look after. The women who work in the iron mill may have tough lives, but their situation in Irontown is far better than the lives they led as prostitutes. And the lepers she cares for would have no lives at all if it weren't for Raboshi. San is reckless, highly strung, and occasionally a tad irrational. Yet she is fiercely loyal and is ready to fight and die for her cause. And to be fair, her cause and those of the creatures of the forest takes a longer, more sustainable view on things than the cause of those who dwell in Iron Town. So blinded are they by their hate for one another and their opposing goals that they are incapable of seeing each other as anything more than a beast or a monster. And that's why Ashitaka's presence in this conflict is so important. What do you think you're doing, boy? Stay your hand. The girl's life is now mine. I'm sure she'll make a lovely wife for you. There's a demon inside of you. It's inside both of you. Look, everyone! This is what hatred looks like. This is what it does when it catches hold of you. It's eating me alive, and very soon now it will kill me. Fear and anger only make it grow faster. I'm getting a little bored of this curse of yours, Ashitaka. Let me just cut the damn thing off. Ashitaka is the voice of reason, of diplomacy, of compromise. Having no real allegiances to either side, he is able to examine the situation logically and comes to the conclusion that neither side is wholly justified in their actions. So many heroes in fiction are uncompromising radicals that it makes me so glad that Ashitaka exists. He may not be the most complex or interesting character in the movie, but as a symbol, he speaks to me more than any other protagonist I've encountered. He is a tiny bit of a Mary Sue, but I can forgive it because it's deliberate, and the goal with this characterization is to convey a message. We are Sam. We are Lady Eboshi. We are the people of Irontown. We are the creatures of the forest. Ashitaka is there to show us who we should be striving to be. Not an angry radical who wishes to further their own personal goals, but a humble individual who sees the bigger picture and seeks balance and harmony so that everyone can be happy. 
When I think of art that has truly touched me and tapped into something at the core of my being, Princess Mononoke is one of many examples that constantly comes to mind. The film has had a profound effect on me and how I view others and the world. It is a masterpiece. Now, on to the next of the Studio Ghibli films, My Neighbours, the Yamadas. Studio Ghibli's next film in 1999 was My Neighbors the Yamadas, and this was a big change in style. Like, this is sandwiched between uh, Princess Mononoke, where uh, everyone, it feels like everyone's willing Studio Ghibli to stand up and take this place on the world stage. It's like, this is a mover and a shaker of a studio. And then Spirited Away, where they did precisely that, distributed by Disney in the West, and really just flawed. Just anime in general became much more of a kind of a household mainstream and out of not necessarily just the teenagers' bedrooms. If you look at what happened with the Nintendo Wii, that's kind of what Ghibli achieving this level of... Uh, market supremacy in its own terms was achieving. It was taking anime out in the West, that is. Obviously, in, in Japan, anime is is more than, and was up until this point, more than just for teenagers. Uh, but uh, ev- everywhere else in the world, it seemed to be sort of, well, this is f- for you people, but it's not really a, a family thing. They, Kiki's Delivery Service, for example, was made in 1989, but it wasn't released to big fanfare till 1998 in America with the Kirsten Dunst voiceover. Yeah, yeah. And up to this point, I think, yeah, the 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 American perception of anime and certainly what little we knew about it in the UK was <laughs> limited to Akira... Devilman, <laughs> Ninja Scroll. You say the UK, I think you mean you. I think I mean me too. No, anybody, <laughs> The heroic legend of Arslan. Seriously, no, Channel 4 did an anime season. I know. And I think that was sort of the only real... Akira on broadcast TV that it got at that it was point. it did it did kind of leapfrog from landmark to landmark. Mm. It was like Akira in uh, 1988, Ghost in the Shell in 1995 was a huge deal, yeah. and then Princess Mononoke was a very refined, grown up story, mm. even though it was child accessible. It was also bloody and terrifying. Mm. 
My Neighbours the Yamadas is not in the Ghibli style. It was the first one actually fully digitally animated. They did the whole thing on computers. And yet, and yet, it looks like a flip book. Yes, it does. It looks so much cheaper than what Ghibli had been doing up till now. And it was so much more expensive because they had to train the team to do this. And they don't go back to this style again because the film cost and it made which is another way of saying don't ask, don't tell. Okay. So, because I was going to ask. It actually made 1.56 billion, but that's yen. Okay. So, Uh, And it cost 2 billion. Right. So So that is bad. That is very, very bad. Yes. That's $15 million and it made $11 million. Okay. Or uh, nearly 12 Because I, I had nine. wondered if between Mononoke and Spirited Away, it was a case of, right, we have these two massive things going on. We need something that our trainee artists can be doing in their downtime. Let's knock this together in the, like a, a Disney B project. Yeah, I get, I get what you mean. Um, the, the Disney, That's what it looks like. Disney were attempting something like this themselves around about this time. They were kind of panicking because this was, as we were in the run-up to, like Ants was about to come out at this point. Mm. And the DreamWorks PDI were doing beautiful hand-drawn animation in things like The Prince of Egypt. So they were kind of, like, it was, it was a big question mark as to what big animation was going to be. A question that eventually Shrek answered. Mm. And then... Disney came back with Let It Go and went, aha, yes, we may be shit, but we can also poke fun at ourselves. I will see you, your ogre, and I will raise you an ice queen. And they've been doing it ever since. But My Neighbours the Yamadas is based on an existing Japanese comic strip, a Yonkoma manga, which is four cells, uh, a strip format, uh, so four panels. It's a Garfield. I was just about to say, so this is the... uh... (laughs) This is the Ghibli equivalent of the Garfield movie. I would say more Fred Bassett, or and I'm not familiar with it, but maybe it's more from Andy Cap. Apt to say (laughs) the family fucking circus. I don't know that one at all. That's an American one, I think. Okay, well, this is about a uh, Japanese family. Okay, Um, and it is presented to us in a series of vignettes, and uh, it's all about sort of family life, and oh, some things happen, and and honestly, folks, we did this, we watched all of these in a row, and most of this film has dropped out of my head. It is so nothing of a film. It is a blip, a tweep, a fart of a film, and it is once again directed by Aisayao Takahata, The guy who did uh, Grave of the Fireflies that I hated only yesterday that I do not like. The guy who did the one with the raccoon testicles, Pompoko, that I do not like. And it's not like I was watching them and going, yeah, I'm not going to like this. I was going, please, Takahata, make something that I like. Let me say something nice about you. But he refused. He abjectly refused to make a film that I like and think is good. It's based on the uh, uh, manga Nono-chan by... Hisiichi Ishii, a slice-of-life comedy drama, follows the lives of the Yamada family, Takashi and Matsuka, father and mother, Shige, Matsuka's mother, Noboru, who's 13, the son, Nonoko, who's 7, the daughter, and Pochi, the family dog. And it's a series of vignettes. The central characters of Family Circus are a family whose surname is rarely mentioned. 
The parents are Bill and Thelma, modelled after the author and his wife. The four children, Billy, Doyle, Jeffy and PJ, are fictionalised composites of the Keens' five children. So it's a similar setup. There is a sequence that's actually good in this film, and it comes about two-thirds of the way in when the father goes out back because there is the loud sound of a motorbike, and there are a bunch of ruffians hanging around out back uh, with his neighbour who's gunning his motorbike engine and just kind of causing a loud disturbance. And the father, who has felt emasculated through the entire film approaches meekly and feebly with those awkward little steps, his hands behind his back, kind of trying to work up the courage to ask whether they could maybe keep the noise down. And at this point, and at only this point of the film, the animation goes completely haywire and starts becoming more stylized and grotesque and more in line with a sense of how the scene feels emotionally rather than simply rendering it in the Garfield-style comic strip panels. Uh, Because the neighbour gets aggressive and immediately won't turn off his motorbike and the father feels even more pathetic. And the neighbour event, you know, is sort of like bearing down on him, absolutely, like, impossibly huge. He's a titan of a man. And eventually the mother, uh, the the wife, and the wife's mother come around and start talking to the ruffians. And Grandma tries to lay a slice of perspective on them. She says uh, something along the lines of, you're a big guy, you're a massive dude, you could hurt anyone you want. Well, why don't you use your powers for good? The next time you see somebody in trouble, do something about it. And she lectures him. And I just thought, that's... It's a really neat moment. The the the, the, you know, the father still feels completely pathetic because he is. And the scene kind of peters out after that. But then the father imagines himself as Cayman Rider. And his head turns into a sort of a giant insecty type thing. He sort of gets on his scooter which turns into a type motorbike and races off after these guys and there's a protracted chase sequence and he's riding along on the scooter firing two guns and not even holding the handlebars and I watched it for a while and then I did what I do I would say maybe what I do best Uh, and not something that most of you folks are really party to when I'm able to do it I stopped I rewound it a bit I queued up a different score and I played the beginning of Akira. The track is called Kaneda. And it matched the tempo perfectly to the point where I am willing to bet folding yen that this team actually did animate this sequence to Kaneda because it matched too perfectly. It flowed emotionally and it matched the patterns of as the music develops and goes from the togo drums up into the vocal sections. And then when it stops, the scene stops with that boom sound. And I'm like, that's masterful. Akira is masterful. I love that film. My neighbors, the Yamadas, not so much. Have you got anything to say about this I one? Because I'm blaming myself here, but Sharon's got nothing. The, 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 the film gave her nothing. We saw it in Japanese with subtitles. And I feel like we missed out because we might actually have gotten a little bit more from it had we watched the English version, which stars as Takashi, the father, Jim Belushi. Eee. Cannonball! Hey, fellas, why don't you keep it down a little? Molly Shannon playing his wife. 
David Ogden Steers as the narrator. I mean, that makes it worth listening to just to get a little bit more David Ogden Steers. And as grandma, Tress McNeil. Ah! Why did we watch the Japanese one? Why did we listen to those people saying Ghibli films are ruined by the dubs? Also, Tress McNeil must have had a word because the man talking to Takashi, you remember him, was voiced by Billy West. Oh, how beautiful. Ah, good morning, Shige. I don't think I've ever seen such a magnificent specimen. <laughs> oh, you are too kind. What species? Those there are Minos chrysanthemums, and these... No, the caterpillar. Hmm? Don't know. Don't worry. Someday you'll be as gaudy as that flower. Yep, that's Grandma. One film I should be checking out is Esao Takahata's The Great Adventures of Horus, Prince of the Sun, also known as The Little Norse Prince in the West. He made it back in 1968, and it is a groundbreaking piece of anime history, unlike my neighbours, the Yamadas. But yeah, this was a cul-de-sac for Studio Ghibli. It was not a film that... in It was the opposite of a landmark. It was a slip and a fall off the road and then get back on with Spirited Away to achieve their highest possible accomplishment. We will be doing a full show on Spirited Away. If Studio Ghibli can ever make anything which I prefer to Spirited Away, the way that uh, Moana actually somehow outstrips The Lion King for me, I dearly look forward to that day. I wait with bated breath. But we're gonna move past it now. To the Cat Returns. From the legendary Studio Ghibli, creators of Spirited Away, comes The Cat Returns to select cinemas nationwide. When a young girl saves a strange cat, she is suddenly whisked away to a mysterious kingdom of cats in this delightful family adventure. <laughs> And this is of note, the Japanese title of the film, uh, Niko no Ongashi, is The Cat's Repayment. That's ah. not the return at all. No, it's not. Well, The Cat Returns feels as though they are invoking The Cat Came Back. Yes. Which is a very, very different story. <laughs> Benny had a cat that they wouldn't let him keep. So we put her up for sale at a price he thought was cheap. He took her to a neighbor to ask him for advice. He said, Just leave the kitty here. She'll help me with the mice. But the cat came back. She wouldn't stay away. She was sitting on the porch the very next day. The cat came back. She didn't want to roam. The very next day it was home sweet. Now, I actually got this confused with another film. Uh, I thought it was uh, Whisper of the Heart because I remember seeing a film where a Ghibli girl walks through a Japanese suburb following a cat that she wants to pet. And I remember Willow watching this cat walk further and further away from the girl and crying because Willow is very soft-hearted, loves animals, loves being able to connect with animals. And the idea of an animal not caring and walking away and leaving her behind, because Willow hates being left behind, really got to them. But, you know, 
they're 14 now. They, they got over it. No, though, um, but this was when they were very young and quite you know, relatively nonverbal. But I actually wasn't that far off. This is kind of sort of a spiritual and at the same time in-world sequel to Whisper of the Heart. And I had seen neither film, so this felt like a double breath of fresh air. Whisper of the Heart is the one where uh, the girl sang Country Road and uh, wanted to date the uh, violin maker, but he went off to Europe. But then he came back. But then he started to... Well, at the end, she's trying to write her book. And it's kind of a, at least she's now on this road. That book is a prop in this film. It's there in the window near the cat statue that was also a major prop in that film of the gentleman cat, who in this is also voiced by Kerry Elwes. But it has a completely different tone, even though it's a sequel, kind of like Alien and Aliens. Yeah, sort of. Also, they are both about worlds of the imagination and not listening to everyday people who tell you not to go there. Yeah. This one was directed by Hiroyuki Morita in their only Ghibli-directed film. They had, however, been key animator for many others. And it was another one of those attempts to give the younger Ghibli artists something to do of their own. So it was just after Spirited Away, and they were kind of riding a wave of adulation at this stage. And the fantastical element is that it follows a schoolgirl once again, called Haru Yoshioka, and she's a shy but noble high school student, and one day she saves a cat from being hit by a truck in a busy road. The cat she saved turns out to be Luna, Prince of the Cat Kingdom, and as a thanks, the cats give Haru gifts of catnip and mice. So, this procession of cats turn up outside her door, just walking down the street, and she's like, what the f*** is going on? And they're they're like, thank you, madam, for saving the cat prince. And she's like, I'm nobody really. And then she gets embroiled in this cat kingdom scheme and gets whisked away to the land of talking cats. And uh, I feel like this is a furry awakening for a lot of people who uh, managed to see it at a young age, much like the Disney Robin Hood, because you've got like a lot of cats proposing marriage in this one. Mm. Although the way... of, you should come and live with us, all the catnip you could eat. The way you're framing it, you're implying large, elegant, uh, anthropomorphic anthropomorphic cats who. Um, are seeking out this young girl and presenting her with a world of cat luxury beyond her wildest dreams. Oh, no. No, no. What happens is an entire town full of feral cats turn up outside her door, <laughs> yowl at her, and kidnap her. But she can understand them because she has she's the, the, uh, the feline equivalent of a parcel mouth. Yes, indeed. Hey, Mr. Marbles, say something. Come on, what's on your mind? Oh. oh my god. Uh. No, I hate that. Say words, okay? But uh. uh, can you say dada? Uh. Son of a bitch. Uh. Please stop. Uh. What? Uh. This is so much worse than meowing. No, I was thinking maybe I could come over to your place later, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoa. No, I don't have a man over. Uh. Dude, it is 3 a.m. Uh. <laughs> what, what are you laughing now? That's that's still not words. Wait, wait, oh. What is that's not anything. Hey. Okay, that was super racist.
and yeah, they do. They do. I mean, it's a kidnapping. It is a kidnapping. It's a, yeah, well, yes. uh, kidnapping. yeah. They ask her if she would like to marry the cat prince, and then take her anyway. Yeah, she's played by Anne Hathaway in the English dub. Again, we missed that. And like I say, Carrie Elwes comes back. The Cat King is played by Tim Curry himself. That's why I bought this Blu-ray. I was like, I, I, we have to have both versions of this available to us at all times. <gasps> Judy Greer as Yuki. Yeah. Kristen Bell. Kristen Cat Bell. As Hiromi. Yeah, trying out. Uh, this was around about the Veronica Mars stage of her uh, career. Mm. So, I mean, it's this is much more just sort of a fun excursion rather than the epic Alice in Wonderland fable that is uh, Spirited Away. But it's, and it's also one that we've only just seen and haven't really been able to absorb all that much. But it felt a relief to go back to what what feels like the Ghibli style, capital T, capital G, capital S, after My Neighbours, the Yamadas. Much like the way uh, Porco Rosso was originally supposed to be a promotional video for a Japanese airline, this was supposed to be for a Japanese theme park, and they commissioned Ghibli to do like a 20-minute short with characters from uh, Whisper of the Heart. And they had so much fun putting this together that when the theme park backed out, got buyer's remorse and cancelled, they went, let's go ahead and carry on making this as a, as a full project. But yeah, the, uh, the elements that they were supposed to include were the Baron from the original film, that's the gentleman cat, uh, Muta or Moon, that, uh, a different cat, and a mysterious antique shop. And all of those are present. But it just kind of became this flight of fancy it's it's very similar to a lot of mid-20th century children's contemporary fairy tales like the little broomstick that eventually became mary and the witch's flower this kind of and then she went off had some fun with the cats and was home in time for tea type situation it's not going to hurt you not like the others School of Movies is funded by Patreon, and our $15 supporters get credit every episode. Little bit of a shout out to our personal love cats, so thank you too. Aaron Lecmuse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Paul Gus, Alex Mewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Mewman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Catchler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Muir, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Munzi, Greg Meowning, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Calico, Joel Robinson, Johan Clawson, Joe Gluck, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Paul Meyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Katzko, Sean Porham, Toby Skeels Jungi Puss, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Tomcat Painter, Team Mew, Hellas Hayu, Sarah Montgomery, and Cat Esman. All feline puns aside, I have written up a banger of a schedule for the end of the year. We have got eight crucial, massive films that we've been wanting to talk about for either a long time or very intensely for a short time. So they will be Wakanda Forever, Dune Part 1, Prey, Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves, Across the Spider-Verse, Barbie, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem, and RRR coming in the last two months of 2023. Are you excited? I am incredibly excited. And along with that, the remaining shows in the Studio Ghibli collection, culminating in our blowout of adulation for Spirited Away. 
Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's, school's out, out with eyes unclouded by, by hate. Let's go.